This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We've been now in this for over 14 months, and so we want to look at the collective mental health impact of COVID-19 and look at ways to build resilience through a developmental strengths-based trauma-informed approach and that includes some specific tools and interventions to promote coping for youth and families. And really just wanna highlight that we um, are really trying to embed a lot of uh, well-being approaches in all of our meetings. And that includes starting all of our meetings with some kind of check-in and really checking in with ourselves and checking in with our colleagues um, and also family members. And so we've been using check-ins like this um, that really you know, also help promote some laughter and enjoyment and fun. Um, but, you know, really wanting to highlight the importance of checking in with our feelings. And this can be more of a um, kind of personal weather report. Are you feeling really sunny um, or partly cloudy or feeling more gloomy? Um, and I really appreciate these alpacas. Personally, today I'm feeling like number eight. It feels like spring is here and I'm feeling hopeful about the future. This slide comes from Trauma Transformed, which is a seven county Bay Area uh, initiative that was started in 2015 and is hosted by East Bay Agency for Children. It was started by Dr. Ken Epstein and um, really just wanting to highlight this uh, series of statements was put out right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I just wanna read through these with you. We acknowledge that we are in the midst of unprecedented times. We acknowledge that we are each holding a multitude of feelings, responsibilities, fear, and joys at the same time. We acknowledge that there are many responses to stress and uncertainty, each of them valid. We acknowledge that there is no better opportunity to practice compassion and collective care than right now. This is the work. We acknowledge the critical need for reflection, inquiry, and prioritization of the most critical needs. Uh, This has been a really challenging year in many ways. Not only have we had the significant impact of coronavirus and then specific to children and families, um, the impact of distance learning, but also the multiple wildfires that have affected the the West Coast and California in particular. California has had the worst um, four uh, wildfires in the past 10 years um, in, uh, in a lot of the wildfire history. And we've also had really significant impact of longstanding structural and systemic racism. And the impact of that has been widely felt. And this has affected multiple racial and ethnic groups. And we just wanna acknowledge that while we have been in the same storm, we each have different boats. And that um, this depends in part on your resources, on the color of your skin, Um, No judgment in this, we're all in this together, but um, we are able uh, to uncover with our curtain pulled back that we have all of these different disparities in different ways and want to really call out racism, poverty, xenophobia, anti-immigrant policies, and want to be really mindful of uh, what's called performative activism in this. Um, but there has been a significant opportunity to raise awareness and to help try and promote leveling the the playing field a little bit more. Um, The collective trauma 
um, of COVID-19 may simultaneously be calling out some of these inequalities, but there is a disproportionate effect on persons of color. We wanna be mindful of that. We also wanna acknowledge that we have been often stuck at home and often with lots of time on our screens, sometimes late at night, and really wanting to look into the crystal ball of the future and you know, figure out what will happen. There's been a lot of uncertainty. And we know that significant exposure to media around difficult events, um, things like the Ebola virus and also repeated media exposure to events around 9-11 have resulted in vicarious traumatization. And this can really impact sleep and, um, and cause longer term uh, post-traumatic stress symptoms. So wanting to be really mindful of that. And what are the ways that COVID-19 has impacted us? It's really wrecked havoc on our routines and schedules and our connection to community and loved ones and many other um, circumstances that are unique to each individual and family. And it's also become really clear that there are many, many gaps um, in our system with disproportionate effects on minorities and women, in particular um, what's happening with childcare and also mental health care and economic and educational and social opportunities and disparities. This is um, from February, 2021 um, life evaluation. Uh, this is a Gallup poll. And as you can see, um, there have been some of the lowest valuations of um, who's felt like they're really um, thriving uh, with an all-time low at the beginning of the pandemic at 46%. And there's been a significant 10-point decline, um, which represents close to 25 million people. And this does approximate the number of people who have filed for unemployment before the end of April as a result of the economic collapse. And there's been a higher than ever amount of stress and worry amongst adults ages 18 to 44. Um, this is more than older age groups or younger age groups. The National Center for Health Statistics partnered with the US Census Bureau and has been doing weekly household pulse surveys that include assessment of depression and anxiety done through standard screens. Um, one is the generalized anxiety screener and another is the, the PHQ-2, which is a screener for depression, and has found that there's been significant increases in um, rates of depression and anxiety um, since the pandemic started. This has been pretty consistent. So last year, um, in uh, between August and October, um, the rates of depression were um, 31%, anxiety 39%, and for both 44%. In contrast, during January to June of 2019, the rates of anxiety were around 8%, depression about 6.5%, and for both about 11%. And then this has remained fairly consistent um, through 2021. So February through um, March of this year, rates of combined anxiety and depression have been around 30%. What has this meant um, for individuals? So. Um, for those of you who are parents, um, you have stepped into the role of not only being parent and also whatever professional role you fill, but um, every day being superheroes in those ways, and then needing to step into the role of additional caregiving for children, um, also maybe worrying about 
um, the generation ahead. So grandparents who may be completely out of touch and very alone and not able to care for themselves, also stepping into the role of teacher and coach and tutor and increased household duties um, that have all resulted in significant amounts of stress and with often very little break in between. Wanting to highlight the impact in particular on women. So historically, women have tended to serve as the emotional buffer for children between the stress of the outside world and what's happening in the home. And and we know that um, on average, um, 10% of working mothers between April and August of 2020 reported not working each week because they were providing care to a child who was not in school or child care. And labor force participation overall was reduced by about 3% among married mothers with a child under the age of six, uh, 4% with children ages six to 12, and about 3% with children ages 13 to 17. We also know that um, that currently um, 70% of parents with children report that their child care provider is either closed or has significant reduced hours. And there are anticipated child care deserts in particular in socioeconomically um, lower neighborhoods. And that has resulted in a really significant disproportionate effect on working mothers in more low income jobs. So what does all this stress mean? We know from from studies around toxic stress that um, there are certain levels of stress that we need to have each day. Um, It's what kind of motivates us to get out of bed and start our day. And uh, a lot of this can be seen as kind of positive stress. So an example could be when children go to school um, for the first day of school um, or spend a day with a new caretaker. Tolerable stress is when there's a stronger amount of stress that gets activated. And this may happen during a natural disaster that's usually time limited or following the death of a close friend or family member. And then there's something called toxic stress where there's a heightened response to more frequent and prolonged adversity. We've been in this for quite some time. And again, thinking about uh, differential impacts on communities of color in particular and um, and those who have less economic advantage. And that may result in increased toxic stress response. So what happens to our bodies during a stress response? We've all heard of the fight, flight, freeze response. Um, This is actually something that our bodies do automatically when we experience threat. And it's a very primitive brain function that has been there for a really long time. So thinking about um, potentially cave person times, there is a lion that just came out and is about to attack you. Um, You have a couple of options. One is to prepare to fight or prepare to run away or to freeze and play dead, so to speak. And um, our bodies process the signal for fear um, almost immediately, even before we can actually articulate what's happening. And I just wanna highlight that Um, This is all um, something that happens very automatically. So here in the prefrontal cortex of your brain, this is where you have your kind of higher order processing. You're able to process complex tasks. But when you are faced with a significant threat, then your amygdala here takes over. And and that sends a flood of norepinephrine that kind of hijacks your thinking brain and causes this cascade of hormones that really... Um, send signals to your body to prepare to fight 
or to run away. So if you've ever felt very anxious, you notice that your heart goes faster. You may feel short of breath. Your muscles get tense. You may feel dizzy. These are all signs that your body is taking in more oxygen. Your blood is pumping faster because you're getting ready to fight or run away. And this all happens very automatically. And then there are secondary responses that result in increased cortisol and um, that can affect the way that your body processes fats and sugars. Um, and that can happen over a prolonged period of time in the face of constant or chronic threat or stress. So more simply um, here, your sympathetic nervous system is that fight, flight, freeze, um, activated or gas pedal part of your nervous system. And then your parasympathetic is the, the brakes. This is what helps you slow down. So the way to activate your parasympathetic nervous system is to actually um, allow yourself to breathe a sigh of relief. Um, when you exhale, that is signaling that it's okay to not take in so much air and get ready to run away, um, but rather that you can now calm down, you can relax, um, the danger has passed. And so this is the science of why exercise or part of why exercise is so good for you is that it actually helps to, um, to release all of that adrenaline and, um, and trigger the parasympathetic or rest response. And um, just wanting to point out here that when we have overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system or the, um, the gas pedal response, then you can get kind of stuck in this on mode and you have symptoms of anxiety, um, symptoms of insomnia. Um, you might feel kind of easier to startle. And, um, and meanwhile, your body is trying to compensate by trying to press that brake pedal. And sometimes when, um, when it's trying to compensate, then you can get stuck in this off mode after a prolonged period of stress. And so this is where you start to get more shut down. You may feel more numb. You may feel more tired and just not able to experience much of any emotion. And um, this is when the parasympathetic nervous system gets overactivated in response to prolonged stress and prolonged sympathetic activation. So wanted to invite you right now to actually try and activate your parasympathetic nervous system response. We don't have control over our heartbeat. And we have some control over how tense our muscles get. Um, but one of the most effective and simple ways to actually activate that brake um, pedal is to control our breathing. And the way that we can do that is actually having our out breath, our exhale, be longer than our in breath. So right now, I'd like to invite you to just um, take a deep breath. And because we're in the Bay Area, we can do this um, in a way that's called 415 breathing, which is the area code for San Francisco. And so if you can sit in a centered way and take a deep breath in, two, three, four, pause, out, two, three, four, five, and in, two, three, four, pause, out, two, three, four, five, and in, two, three, four, pause, out, two, three, four, five. You can just notice how your body feels and 
that hopefully you are feeling more calm, more relaxed. And for those of you watching right now, I just want to ask you to take a moment and think about where are you on the stress continuum? Are you in the range of that positive stress that's helpful and motivating? Is it tolerable? You are feeling stressed, but able to still get by, or does it feel overwhelming? What are you noticing about your own trauma exposure response? For people who have experienced past traumas, sometimes a new trauma can feel additionally triggering or activating or additionally stressful. For some people who have experienced some difficulty and found ways to manage, they may find that it's actually built some resilience and ability to get through more stressful moments because of learning coping skills and learning that they actually can manage. For you, what has been the greatest challenge or challenges of this past year? Just inviting you to reflect and think about that for yourself. Wanted to, to highlight here um, some of the things that have been, I think, discussed in past presentations as part of this series, um, but thinking about how our thoughts, feelings, and bodily sensations are all connected. And so the idea that there's this, what's called a cognitive triad, meaning your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are all kind of linked and impact one another. And then more recently, there's been um, adding in what are your bodily sensations. So as an example, if you have a thought, I should read more about COVID-19 so I can be more prepared. And the feeling that I'm not doing enough, I'm not prepared enough, that may cause some anxiety or fear. And so then that results in a behavior of staying up later and reading more and not getting enough sleep, which can then result in maybe consuming more caffeine the next day, feeling like you're um, feeling more anxious and may cause some tense um, muscles and racing heart and feeling tired, but also overstimulated. And all of these things can go around and affect one another in an ongoing cycle. In terms of what we have control over in this, we often don't have control over our feelings, um, but we can affect some of these other things to help manage our feelings. So for example, um, thinking about your bodily sensations, um, you can manage things like hunger and how much sleep you get, how tired you are, um, how your body feels, how you're sitting in the chair, how you're breathing. Um, you can manage your behaviors. You can choose to not read more, particularly late at night or reduce screen time exposure at that time and um, many other behaviors. Um, we also have control over our thoughts. A lot of us are vulnerable though to what are called cognitive distortions which are actually meant to be protective. They're meant to help us manage in the face of what seems like a threat. That said, they can also create anxiety and create a sense of, um, of depression at times. So these are some common cognitive distortions that um, you can read more about in this article that's referenced here. But um, 
in particular here, you know, we can see some should statements. Um, I should read more about COVID-19 so I can be prepared. And, um, and those kinds of things, you, you recognize that it's actually more anxiety talking um, and producing those cognitive distortions. And then what is the reality? Do you really need to read more? Or is that just a should statement? So how is all of this stress um, for those of us who are parents and or family members um, of younger children? How is that affecting kids? They certainly do feel our stress and respond accordingly. And have you ever noticed how anxiety or other big emotions can be really contagious? Um, so parents may be more stressed right now, not only for financial reasons, but because of feeling constrained in some way, not having adequate childcare, not feeling very prepared to be an effective teacher or tutor or coach. And, um, and so feeling stressed, feeling helpless, feeling overwhelmed, then inevitably does impact those around us, um, and in particular our children. And so this is just really highlighting the need to, um, as the saying goes, put the oxygen mask on yourself first uh, before putting it on your child. Because if you don't do that, then you may end up causing kind of more big emotions in your children and not being able to take care of them or any others effectively. So thinking about parenting self-care as having these key um, aspects. One is really being aware of how you're feeling. And that really does require slowing down and focusing inwardly to determine how you're feeling. And I just want to highlight that this doesn't need to take a long time, just like in the breathing exercise that we just did, that just took um, about a minute. And really so promoting that self-awareness, um, what's going on in your body, what types of thoughts are going through your mind, and how those are affecting your behaviors and actions. And then trying to find some balance. Um, I've really observed some esteemed colleagues who are, you know, intentionally saying no to things that they might otherwise say yes to um, during these difficult times because they are needing to juggle so much more. And then really highlighting the importance of connection. This year has been isolating for many. And we have found lots of amazing workarounds, like being able to do this um, educational uh, session through Zoom and, um, and being able to do a lot of video chatting and connection in these ways. But it is really key to have connected and supportive relationships um, that really help to promote wellness. Here, I just want to highlight kind of more of the, the impact overall. Um, this is from the first uh, few weeks of the pandemic and quarantine in Shangji, China last year, and looking at the tremendous impact of, um, of quarantine in terms of anxiety symptoms. So thinking about clinginess in particular in young children, um, inattention, irritability, worry, um, difficulty sleeping, and, um, and wanting to highlight that what we know from other um, similar situations is that in those persons who have been quarantined, um, there is significantly greater impact with when there's not clear communication about why and how long and kind of knowing what to expect. Um, we also have seen increased rates of substance use across the board uh, as well. Here, just wanting to highlight that, um, you know, I really appreciate how much mental health has been discussed in the media. And 
This is not a new problem. So pre-pandemic, one in five children in the U.S. have had a diagnosable mental health disorder. This is according to the CDC in 2018. And we know that a significant percentage of mental illness onsets by a very young age and that suicide has become the second leading cause of death in persons ages 10 to 24 and also 10 to 34. Post-pandemic, we've seen a few different um, important and noteworthy um, things, and we are all seeing kind of increased rates of referral for mental health um, providers, both therapists and psychiatrists, and um, and looking at kind of what are the numbers. So the data are still somewhat scarce because there hasn't been enough time to do a lot of high quality studies. But this um, this study right here was done um, in a 1,000 parents of children in Toronto, Canada, um, with youth aged two to 18, and um, and found that across six domains of mental health, um, that actually um, 70 percent of kids ages six to 18 and 66 percent of kids ages two to five fared worse in at least one of these domains. The most common one being actually inattention followed by anxiety and depression. Uh, But I think it's also important to note that a fair number of kids in particular preschool age kids actually fared better in at least one of these domains. And we wanna talk about what have been some of the hidden benefits and hidden blessings. I also want to underscore that one of the most significant um, things that have been explored are the impact of loneliness. So we know that um, there's been a significant increase in loneliness, in particular in adolescence, and that the duration of the loneliness is a stronger predictor of depression um, rather than the intensity of the loneliness. So what have been some of the hidden benefits? Um, I've had a lot of teenagers in particular appreciate the benefits of having more sleep. They don't need to get up at 6.30 in the morning to make it to their 8.30 or 9 a.m. class. They can actually sleep often (laughs) until 8.55 and then wake up and and attend school. Um, There's been greater independence, which has been really helpful for some, but not all kids. Um, That includes the ability to self-pace, um, they've experienced kind of lower academic demand. We know that kids who end up feeling overscheduled, overstressed, um, that they have a lot of vulnerability to anxiety and depression. There's been a lot less social pressure in particular. Um, you know, what are you wearing or, you know, having to deal with all of the, um, what a lot of teenagers affectionately call drama um, with peers. And there's also been kind of increased recognition about the importance of addressing mental health issues and with that, decreasing the stigma around um, addressing mental health. Um, Some of the challenges have obviously been significant isolation and then a significant impact on social development and being able to meet normal social milestones. Um, There's been a lot of grief around missed rituals, missed graduations, missed rites of passage in different ways, um, not getting to go to prom or homecoming, um, and then a lot of feelings of uncertainty. And we need to think about kind of specific populations. So um, some shy kids with social anxiety are doing much better, um, but they are also out of practice. And so now that some kids are actually starting to go back to in-person school, there's a more significant struggle to manage that anxiety and feel confident again in in facing their peers. 
Um, some kids with ADHD who are very hyperactive, they're no longer getting in trouble as much for being the class clown, but they are really significantly struggling with inattention and getting schoolwork done and being able to stay on top of things. Some really creative kids or kids who thrive well on less structure um, and kids who are part of marginalized groups like LGBTQ um, and those who are subject to, to bullying have been doing better and may actually find ways to continue um, in doing more virtual school. But um, there have also been significant challenges in particular, um, children with learning challenges. And um, there's also been increased concern for eating disorders and body image concerns and, um, and concerns for increased abuse um, without adults around to supervise and observe and also report um, concerns for abuse. Um, we know that in general, um, there's been a, a kind of mixed bag, but that on the whole, um, that kids do seem to be struggling a little bit more. And we wanna be mindful of how kids are gonna be going back to, um, to in-person school and that that may result in more challenges um, as kids have been out of practice with socializing with their peers. This is um, just a summary of um, of teens and young adults who um, across uh, several different college campuses. And um, these were some really common symptoms that they described. So lack of motivation, anxiety, stress, isolation. And we know that kids who were non-Hispanic white, um, who had higher social class and spent at least two hours outside or less than eight hours on electronic screens were more likely to experience lower uh, psychological impact. So how do we re-regulate? We wanna first create safety through reestablishing rhythms and routines. And we also wanna make sure that we're honing those connections through relationship and then really focusing on a sense of purpose. A lot of people have felt like their sense of purpose has been very much disrupted. Um, we have had completely um, changed our schedules and a lot of people have talked about kind of brain fog, not really being aware of the passage of time um, that the weekends have felt like the weekdays and that even, you know, usual milestones like um, the school year ending and that really signaling the beginning of summer, those usual milestones have been missing and we need to really ensure that we're paying extra attention to creating routines and rhythms. Um, and then similarly with really promoting relationship and connection and doing things intentionally. We also wanna think about things from a strengths-based approach. Um, it can be really easy to um, end up becoming critical or feeling like a certain behavior means that someone is a bad kid or a bad person and really wanting to shift that to um, maybe that's just a problematic behavior, but that in general, you are a good kid um, and that things can shift from what's wrong with you to what's happened to you and then to what is right with you. And coming at this from a strengths-based approach really helps shift um, not only the experience of maybe the child in this instance, but also um, helps to shift the thinking of the adult or teacher, or whomever is working with the child to really focus on what are the things that are going well? 
what are the things that you're doing right? And it's amazing what a difference that can make in terms of orientation and ultimately feelings and behaviors. Wanting to look at that, creating safety through finding rhythms. Um, we know that across time that many, most cultures um, have always had a way of creating rhythms, creating music um, that is across the board. Um, and part of the reason for that, according to um, Bruce Perry, who, uh, who studies trauma and trauma treatment, um, his theory is that we actually um, become used to those rhythms very early um, when we're actually um, in the mother's womb, that we hear the mother's heartbeat, that we feel the rocking and the swaying, and that that becomes very soothing for us. And when we don't have those rhythms and routines, it becomes very destabilizing and stressful. Um, also being able to create a schedule in particular, one that's visibly posted, um, then it can be a lot easier to say, okay, so-and-so is in charge of dinner tonight. And it's harder to argue with a piece of paper than it is to argue with an individual. Um, so if you co-create a schedule together, then you have that kind of shared commitment, that shared accountability and you can easily see it, you know that this is what's happening next. That sense of predictability is very important. This um, slide is actually from the, um, the Surgeon General's report, um, the Roadmap for Resilience, looking at managing toxic stress. And these are the key components um, according, to, um, according to this roadmap. And we wanna make sure that we have these key components. We've talked about a lot of these already. Um, supportive relationships, good quality sleep, balanced nutrition, ensuring good physical activity, ensuring mindfulness. And this doesn't need to be um, you know, for long stretches during the day, but just being able to be mindful in the moment, being self-aware and aware of what's happening in the present moment and access to nature. We know that time spent in nature can be very healing and ideally also access to mental health care. I wanted to kind of go through some normal milestones for different age ranges for kids. Um, so younger children, these are all kind of normal milestones that, um, that young children go through. And um, we know that um, for especially young kids, they may have increased fear of being alone, having more bad dreams, they may have some regression in their behaviors, including speech or changes in their bowel and bladder um, management, more bedwetting perhaps. Um, there may be more temper tantrums or whining or clinging behaviors. And so ways to manage this can be encouraging expression through play, um, through reenactment, through storytelling, and having calming, comforting activities right before bedtime really, really, really making sure that you have family routines and structures and rhythms in place and avoiding media exposure. Kids this age may not be able to distinguish reality from um, something that's made up and they may really just experience the emotion of what they see on the screen. And, um, and then because they're more apt to have kind of magical thinking around things, they may distort um, what the messaging is from media. For grade school age children, so these are kind of normal milestones um, and things to think about as kids grow older. Some of these may have been disrupted a little bit because of um, not being able to socialize as, as frequently. 
and just wanting to keep in mind that it's normal to have maybe more whining, more aggression in this age group, um, more clinginess intermittently, um, also having nightmares, sleep or appetite disturbances, um, having physical symptoms. I have a headache. I have a stomach ache. I don't feel well. Um, maybe feeling more withdrawn from peers or having some decreased interest. Um, and so how can we respond to this? Really wanting to ensure that there's reassurance that you're able to connect with your children um, and trying to find ways to stay in touch, whether that's through video chatting um, with friends or being able to do games um, and really ensuring as much as possible regular exercise um, stretching, being able to engage in educational activities together um, and really encouraging expression, both through play and also through talking. Here are some tips that I really appreciate. Um, some of these phrases are from Dan Siegel, who's a child psychiatrist who really um, practices mindfulness-based, attachment-based um, psychotherapy. And, um, and so some key things are naming it to tame it. Um, that's why these all of these faces are here. It's like if we can name our emotions, then we can much more easily tame them and decrease the power that they have over us. Um, some families like to have a feelings chart that they actually go through and check in at the start of each day. And that way you're creating the language and the ability to name emotions and getting comfortable with doing that before it gets to be kind of a high stakes, high stress situation, because we know then our thinking brain shuts down and we're not able to access the names of those feelings and it may be much harder to do. So starting that with a daily ritual of naming your feelings can really help to promote um, that safety through the ritual and also increase understanding about different feelings. Connect and then redirect is really key. Um, the simplest way to put this is when I'm trying to, to talk with my kids and they may be feeling, you know, some kind of big emotion, then I really ask them to look at me with their listening eyes because making eye contact really ensures that kind of more emotional, deeper connection. Um, and then you can try to direct them away from it rather than just blindly yelling or reacting or responding. Um, but it's really important to make sure that you try to understand what's going on and connecting first. Move it or lose it just means we need to move our bodies. We need to be able to, um, to um, regain some balance and that sometimes actually trying to address something cognitively, verbally in the moment with your child is just not going to work because they are just in that kind of more amygdala response, fight, flight, and are not able to engage effectively in talking about it. And so being able to move your body, kind of release some of that energy and tension, and then being able to talk about it later can be really helpful. This is just a kind of reminder around, you know, behaviorism and in particular for younger children, it's really important to think about the situation or moment if you're having a challenging behavior, um, what may be um, inadvertently reinforcing. Um, and so what, what's the behavior that is problematic? What happened right before that? And then what happened right after that? Um, and some of the, one of the easiest examples is if 
you know, every time a child goes to the grocery store, they get a piece of candy, then um, of course that's going to become very reinforcing. And so maybe if they go to the grocery store and they're especially hungry, that can be a contributing kind of antecedent um, that is causing them to ask for that even more. And, and then if one day they end up not getting the candy, of course, there's going to be a big reaction. Um, so making sure that they're fed and that you tell them in advance, we're not going to get candy today. We're going to stop with the candy um, may improve the likelihood of a better outcome. That said, you may still get a really big response on the very first day when they're not going to get the candy. Um, but if you change it to we can give you the candy when we get home, if you can manage really well in the store, then that would be a reinforcing consequence that actually helps to shape the behavior that you want. So thinking about, again, having you know really clear expectations um, for your younger child, and then again, focusing on what you can do, what you can control, um, rather than the things that you can't do. Um, really encouraging younger children to be able to engage in developmentally appropriate chores um, because that helps to build confidence, that helps to build um, the idea that I can actually do this and, um, and contribute to the community that is your home. And then for adolescents, um, so these are some normal milestones. Um, and it does seem that adolescents are having you know, significant um, impact from schools being closed and, you know, being more in the home with their family members when actually what's expected of them at this age is to start to make more friends and test out their identity outside the home and, um, and be able to get a lot of input from their peers. And that often kind of parents, you know, they may be there um, to support their, their teen um, and the teen may really want to be with them one moment and then really not want to the next moment. Um, and so the reason that they're spending a lot of time in their room on their screens is because they're actually trying to connect with peers and um, and wanting to have you know less time with parents. Um, so and again, thinking about the impact of that isolation um, that they are currently or have been experiencing throughout this pandemic. Um, so here wanting to underscore that having really clear expectations that are reasonable and realistic and ideally kind of co-created. Um, if you have the expectation, okay, I need you to take out the trash and make sure that you set the table for dinner. And then I expect you to join us for dinner and I expect your homework to be done by X time. Um, you're naming that in advance, you're setting those clear expectations. Um, but having expectation, you know, that's um, not predictable, that's not clear, um, can be really challenging for teens, especially right now. It's also really important to be as honest as you can be, um, and to be explicit about this. Um, I also just want to underscore that adolescent risk-taking is really normal. And so some of the, um, at least what we were seeing kind of earlier on, you know, really um, like teens violating, you know, quarantine or not wearing masks or things like that, 
some of that is really part of this adolescent kind of developmental step of wanting to take risks, wanting to test out, you know, can I, can I get away with these things? And that a lot of that is quite normal. And so wanting to, um, to focus on, you know, what is really a very significant risk and curtailing that. Um, but just knowing that some of that is very developmentally expected. Also wanting to just keep in mind um, that there are a number of possible additional derailers that teens face um, and uh, or that children face that may be um, adding to struggling a little bit more. So for example, um, any kind of learning differences, um, long-term stress and trauma, people who have experienced a lot of trauma may find the isolation, um, even that much more challenging, um, or if people have difficulty regulating their emotions um, or having attentional and impulse control problems, um, we're definitely seeing kind of across the board greater difficulty with focusing and paying attention. Here, I just want to underscore um, that what you see on the surface um, often is just the surface. And so some things that, for example, look like anger may actually be because of that activation of that fight or flight response, feeling, for example, here, stressed or anxious um, or disappointed. And so um, this uh, phrase is really helpful, I find, and I've borrowed it from a colleague with permission, be curious before you get furious. So asking why, asking what happened, how were you feeling, what was going on um, before reacting. And here wanting to underscore the importance of connection in particular, um, the benefits of, of family dinners. And Fischel uh, is a psychologist and family therapist and is the co-founder of the Family Dinner Project, which is a nonprofit initiative that encourages families to connect over mealtimes. And there are a number of benefits um, of families eating together, in particular um, cognitive ones. So young kids have bigger vocabularies um, if their families eat dinner together consistently. Older kids tend to be doing better in school. Um, there are physical benefits, better cardiovascular health, lower rates of obesity, and also psychological impact. Um, there, this is associated with lower rates of depression, anxiety, eating disorders, um, substance use, and also fewer behavioral problems in school. This, uh, the purpose of this is aimed at, in particular, teens, um, because these are some basic life skills that is important for every teen to, um, to learn before they, they launch, before they leave the home. And, um, and so really being able to, um, you know, to know how to use a credit card, for example, um, how to be able to cook certain key things, um, being able to manage a simple budget. Um, these are things that there may be even greater opportunity to practice while we do have kind of more family together time. And this really helps to not only build skills, um, but to be able to inspire that confidence that, yes, I can manage on my own. Um, and then in terms of finding purpose, um, it is important for families to schedule activities and do things together that um, that do have a sense of purpose um, and not just everyone kind of being in the room together, but everyone's on their own screens or devices. You want to create activities like family dinners that um, that have a combined sense of purpose. So 
being able to um, to build upon each of these things. Um, this is from the American Academy of Pediatrics, and I just think it's a, a useful way to remember um, different components that help to build resilience overall. So the more connections that we have, um, the better we tend to do. Um, and the more skills that we have, the more confident we can be. Um, being able to work on characters. So children are always closely observing um, really at any age and children with strong core values um, who make the greatest contributions and have the best sense of self um, and also have the most secure and healthy relationships. Um, being able to contribute to others, doing for others um, can really um, give a really significant sense of um, of purpose and also feeling better about yourself. Um, and then thinking about um, coping, what are the ways that we are demonstrating coping skills for our children and teaching them to manage their own feelings. It's okay to have any kind of feelings. It's what you do with them. And, um, and then how do you focus on what you can manage or can control? So, We've talked about a lot of these, but I think um, a couple that I really want to highlight here are um, being able to build hope for oneself, um, number five, and this is important for us as parents to do, um, to think about what it is that you want um, rather than worrying about what it is that you fear. And really number nine, um, practicing self-care and self-compassion, um, paying attention to that. We know that um, that people who can practice um, not only self-care but also self-compassion end up having healthier relationships with their family members, with their partners, with their kids, um, as well as with you know colleagues and um, and others outside the family unit. Here is a, um, a snippet from something called the collaborative problem-solving principle that um, is something that was. Um, designed uh, by Russ Green and Steve Ablon and wanting to think this is linked to, um, you know, using a strengths-based approach and that it follows the principle we're all doing the best that we can. And when we're not doing that well, it's because of a lack of skill rather than a lack of will. And so it may be that, um, you know, that a teen doesn't know how to, for example, do their homework really well. And so it's not just that they're avoiding doing it. It's just that they're having a hard time focusing or that they don't understand it. And that if they could do better, they would do it more easily. And so thinking about what are the skills that are lacking and, um, and then what are the ways that you can help to support um, them being able to do the plan that's going to work best for them. Also wanting to highlight that it's important not to uh, do top-down adult-imposed kinds of plans, especially with teens, because that often backfires. Um, ideally, you want to co-create a goal together and then co-create how to get there. Um, and then plan C is if there's really just not enough skill right now to be able to move forward with that. Um, with the original plan or the goal. And so you just drop the expectation. This has been true for um, certainly some academic work that has just felt way too hard to manage all the different 
um, media platforms that are required. And so just having kind of lower expectations. Sleep. Sleep is a big one. And so just wanted to touch on this. Um, there has been a really significant impact on sleep um, that has been challenging. And um, so here is kind of a reminder of, you know, what does sleep look like across the lifespan? How much sleep do each of us need? And, you know, for, um, for really young children, obviously they need a lot of sleep. Um, and then teenagers still may need up to eight to 10 hours. Oftentimes they're not getting that and that they may be wanting to stay up later and then sleep in later. And, um, and so with that, you know, when do you, when do you turn off the screens and then how much screen time is too much? Um, I think everyone has recognized the need for being on screens in order to do virtual school and to, to complete um, assignments. And there's still a recommendation to limit the number of hours of non-academic screen time, ideally. Um, that said, there does seem to be kind of a, um, a benefit to some amount of um, social media and being able to manage um, and maintain social relationships and that it does result in kind of more feelings of inclusion and feeling more confident um, as part of their social media relationships. Um, and I think, you know, as with most things, there's a, a balance here. So, um, you know, there's a greater proportion of teenagers who say that social media helps them strengthen friendships um, and that they feel more positively about it, but there are a fair number of teens who report more negative feelings here. So how much is too much? Um, it does seem like moderate screen use is associated with greater sense of well-being and more connection, um, but that excessive screen time users report overall less lifetime satisfaction. And there may be some impact of kind of excessive use on um, both delaying bedtime and limiting time um, spent outside in nature and or in physical activity and also in um, connected relationships. So here are some recommendations. Um, being able to establish healthy sleep practices, um, setting aside regular bedtimes, and again, really trying to adhere to that schedule as much as possible um, with predictable routines and wanting to avoid um, screen use in the hour before bedtime because it can impact your body's natural melatonin production. And, um, and then wanting to make sure that the screens stay out of bedrooms as much as possible. Um, and then avoiding just having the TV on in the background. We talked about this a little bit, but there is kind of increasing um, support for more time spent in nature. And um, there are some limited studies that show that, you know, being able to disconnect completely from our um, our screens, our phones for even just a few days have significant uh, impact on attention and well-being. And, um, and that being able to just be out in nature has a beneficial effect uh, in terms of mood. This is a, a recent paper that was just published by Dr. Tom Boyce, um, looking at kind of the, the long-term effectiveness. I think we wanna take the long view of what the impact has been. Um, I am getting a lot of parents asking, you know, will this permanently scar my child? Will my child be damaged forever because of the experience of this past year or however long this ends up lasting? 
And I think the short answer to that, based on what we know from other studies, is that um, most of us will recover, most of us will do well. I think that we've learned that we are very adaptable and that we um, generally are resilient in the face of stress and that there can be, um, you know, kind of longer term impacts um, for those who may be genetically a little bit more vulnerable and or who have greater um, levels of toxic stress in their environments and then what happens over time. And we know that the single biggest modifiable factor in here is having supportive, loving relationships um, with at least one adult caregiver, but ideally many connected and loving, supported individuals um, over time. We do need to um, believe that these days will pass, but also keeping in mind that we are, we are not quite there yet. Um, and it, to underscore the importance of, of relationships and having caring adults, I um, wanted to highlight that during World War II, um, there were many children in what was called Operation Pied Piper um, who were actually um, transported away from their parents, away from the bombings in London in order to, to keep them more safe. Um, they were transported out into the English countryside and actually children who stayed with their parents amidst the bombings, but were with their, their loving, supportive caregivers actually fared better from a longer term mental health standpoint than those who were taken away. I do want to highlight the incredible opportunities that we have here. Um, again, thinking about the, the reduced stigma around mental health issues and wanting us to think collectively about expanded access uh, to mental health care. And that includes digital platforms, that includes more school-based care and um, looking at also ways to uh, support behavioral health integration and primary care and, um, and looking at consultative models of care that provide briefer interventions than long-term traditional um, mental health care models. And then the creation of accessible toolkits. There are a number of resources that are out there um, that have been made available through the pandemic. And I think if we can just take little bits at a time from each of these toolkits and do what works for us, that that will be incredibly helpful. Again, wanting to remind ourselves that um, that we do need to care for ourselves and that it's about self-preservation and that we want to think about meaning-making. Um, that includes being able to talk about what's going on, talk about um, the pros, the cons, the struggles, the hopes that we have realized during this time and, um, and not just going quickly to forgetting or, you know, thinking that, well, back to school is going to mean back to normal um, because it may or may not mean that. I think that we need to look at what has been the collective impact. Um, how are we learning from this experience and being able to, um, to remember um, the impact that it has had for better and for worse. So some key takeaways that I'd like for you to, to come away with. Um, that mental health disorders are incredibly common, um, and that includes pre-COVID, that, um, that right now we can see that some kids are doing worse um, and that some are doing better. There aren't any easy answers. And 
that we've also learned that we are resilient or we're reminded again that we're very resilient and we can be hopeful and cautiously optimistic. Um, we need to find ways to foster and promote more resilience and that we need to be mindful of what, um, what things look like when children do go back to school and also looking at additional models for mental health care delivery. And I will pause on this and pause for questions. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for, um, for the, there were so many gems just along the way in that whole talk. Um, it, it makes me at the end, I'm just thinking to myself, boy, I really wish I could see like the, the whole set of slides and pick the various ones just to kind of remind myself of um, because there's 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 so much there. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, I I have a, a bunch of thoughts that come to my mind of things that we we could chat about, and I want to bring up one question that's come through from the Q and A. Um, this question is so they're curious if anyone has studied single children and looked at um, their pandemic coping skills. Um, having grown up with no siblings. Um, it's interesting that the question goes on to say, assuming that gives them a sort of edge, do their skills come at a cost? I think this is a great question. And I personally have not seen um, any studies related to the difference between single children and, um, you know, and siblings. Um, but I will um, just share what I've observed clinically and also personally. And, um, and that is that, I mean, I think as with most things, it's been kind of a, a mixed bag. Um, I have friends and colleagues who have um, single children and, you know, they've really observed um, maybe more regression in terms of their um, levels of play and, you know, and their coping skills. Um, and, uh, and then in terms of, you know, if I can speak uh, with my own kids, they have certainly um, had, you know, an increased kind of closeness and then also, of course, increased challenge and struggle at times. Um, but, you know, there have been many moments where I've certainly appreciated that they've had each other to play with during this time. They're seven and nine. And, um, and I think, you know, for better and for worse, it certainly has brought them a lot closer. Um, but I think that, you know, we have, we have yet to see what this looks like across the board. You know, it's just thinking about how to, to take advantage of some of the perspectives and tools, um, the, the, the research-based tools that you presented. I wonder if we could just think of a couple of um, scenarios. There's so many different things that have come across for many of us as practitioners and as, as you mentioned, for, for our friends and families. But let's, let's just pick an example of say it's a family with a 13 year old who is starting to retreat and withdrawal and stay in their room a little bit more and not showing up and um, is in many kind of real life scenarios. Let's just say it's an overtaxed parent who's trying to balance um, uh, work. Um, perhaps it's zoom based, perhaps it's not, but their child is at home and they have to manage all of these things. So they're feeling stressed too. How would you, what, if, granted, it's hard in the gen, general sense like this without the specifics of the situation, but what, what, would you, what would you suggest for them to begin a process if they're starting to say, I'm a little worried? I think um, 
I hope I'm hearing your question correctly. It sounds like um, both being able to kind of manage the the structure of the day um, amidst the multiple demands and then concern for, you know, possible emerging depression um, or just kind of um, isolation. Yeah, perhaps actually just naming the behavior. Let's say that the parent says, my kid seems to be withdrawing. How do they go about guiding, how do we go about guiding a parent in the process of is how much of a problem is this? I think um, looking at, you know, what's a change from, from baseline and also are they still able to manage, you know, their minimum expectations? Usually the minimum is, you know, being able to kind of keep up with schoolwork and acknowledging that, you know, there has been kind of less demand academically in general. And, um, and so, you know, but looking at that, are they able to complete their basics um, or are they really just not functioning well um, and not functioning appropriately? And then are their usual kind of preferred activities, do those still seem fun to them or not, you know, depending on, on what those are? Um, I've had some young people say, you know, even the video game that I loved for years is no longer enticing to me. I'm just not motivated to do anything. And, um, or, you know, being able to, to connect with peers. If, um, if those kinds of things are happening, then that's definitely more concerning. And, you know, ways to try and connect can be um, to do some kind of shared activity, um, whether that's, you know, asking someone to, um, asking your teen to, to make dinner with you, um, or, you know, just holding that as an expectation, but doing something where, you know, there's maybe an additional distraction um, even just driving together where you don't actually have to look at one another, um, but be able to just kind of start the conversation in a really gentle way. What's going on? And I, a nice um, allusion to that tool of kind of doing something actively together that keeps the attention uh, off of something else, perhaps. Um, to, to keep playing the devil's advocate a little bit. Let's say the teenager just says, I don't want it. Sometimes... Yeah. Yeah, and, and that happens, you know, very frequently, and especially um, thinking about those behaviorism principles, you know, we're all creatures of habit, and the more we do something, the more we tend to do something. And so, you know, if maybe I've been in my room mostly, and, you know, saying I'm doing homework, but I'm actually, you know, chatting online or looking at YouTube or whatever, and I've been doing that for hours a day for weeks on end, then I'm going to be less motivated <laughs> to change that behavior. Um, but, you know, being able to just offer um, what's called, you know, some really um, limited scaffolded, um, you know, ask like, hey, I just need to talk to you just for five minutes or I need your help just for a couple of minutes and then offering a forced choice. Um, so, you know, you can either help me now or you can help me at 2 p.m., but I really, you know, I, I do need you to do this. And so if I, as a teen, feel like I have a little bit of control over that, then, um, you know, that can really help. Um, sometimes the answer might still be, no, I don't want to do that at 2 p.m. And um, and that's where, you know, thinking about like, okay, what's the consequence going to be, you know, if, um, if they're not able to do it. Um, if I'm hearing you there, there's a bit of, of parents managing their expectations. Is is that that uh, there's not going to be a technique that's going to change your child's attitude or tone or behavior or mood in an evening intervention or 
a week's worth. And, right. And that that's okay. You know, that yeah, it doesn't, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't have to be, you know, um, with a great attitude or, you know, done perfectly, especially if you're out of practice with that. Um, but that eventually over time, you know, there may be some pushback, but if you, as the parent hold the expectation, even if, you know, I am not really wanting to, to, do my homework or do it really well or help you chop vegetables. If I know that like over the long term, that's your expectation, then eventually I'm going to learn how to chop the carrots, you know, like well enough to your liking. Um, how about and even another common scenario is younger kids, three to eight or, or just an era down, let's say between five and eight who who are starting to have difficulty with emotional regulation, where their, their regression is showing up as more angry outbursts, more a little bit of even uh, testing with door slamming or throwing something in the room. Um, and it's a surprise to parents, like that's not usual for you. What are some ways you might guide them in first or second steps as approaches? One of um, one of the tools that I think is really so important is um, is just basic validation, um, and that means not I know how you feel um, because I can't ever know how someone else feels, but um, to be able to you know look at the situation and okay I can tell that you're feeling angry right now or um, I know that was really upsetting, um, but to be able to you know not give up um, and you know, if need be to be able to give a few minutes of, of quiet and space, um, but then to still hold the expectation, okay, no, you're angry. You may not want to talk to me right now, but in five minutes, I need to talk with you about what just happened. Or, you know, you can tell them, I can tell that you're upset. Um, let me know when you're ready to talk about it. And usually within a few minutes, you know, or sooner, they will want to reach out because at that age, they really are wanting to regulate. They do want to feel better. They just don't know how. It's a question of lack of skill, not will usually. And, um, and then kind of bigger picture, you know, setting things up in a way that helps to prevent that situation from, from happening. Um, and that usually includes those, you know, combinations of the structure and schedule, and then also the connection and sense of purpose. Lovely, thanks. Yeah, I, there's an, an area of questions that I've asked a lot of our speakers in the last few weeks about distinguishing um, times when parents, when it's helpful for kids, let's say, for example, to use an earlier framing you had about um, oh, uh, positive stress, and then there were three in the toxic stress, and the, I can't remember how the characterization oh, was in the yeah. middle. Pardon? Tolerable. Tolerable, right. So in that tolerable, tolerable stress range, there can be parenting approaches that um, go different directions. And one would be the tough it out, grit, tenacity parent that is encouraging you can do this, you can get through this, you're going to be fine. And then there is another strategy of empathic joining, this is difficult, um, but the, that kind of understanding joining with the struggle of this, but perhaps more of a like, yeah, I hear it, that's really tough, I'm really sorry. Um, 
it's an area that I wonder a lot about, about how to help guide folks on when you, when, when you as the parent become that stereotypical coach, it's more mm-hmm. of, a, of a pressure. And it, when does that pressure shift people to more of a toxic experience? When, when does it shift them to a positive experience? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I think, you know, being able to have the best of both of those things. So, you know, what I really appreciate about the kind of um, tough it up um, or tough it out, you know, you can do this um, is actually um, the communication. I believe in you. You are resilient. You can do this. Um, You just need to learn the skills how. Um, And what's maybe missing from that is the validation of, yes, this is hard and I will teach you. So, you know, and then the the other extreme of that is maybe the overly um, validating and just focused on the feelings um, without actually holding out that hope. I believe in you, you can do this and you are resilient. I will help you learn the skills um, and I'll help you more at the beginning. And then as you get better, I will help you less, but um, it needs to be kind of up with those. Couldn't have said it better. That was lovely. I'm, I like that distinction between the two. Um, so for now, we don't have any other questions. Um, I wonder, you had mentioned a couple of resources. I know you mentioned Dan Siegel, who has a number of books and even work workbooks in the, the whole brain. Are there any particular resources you would recommend um, around supporting families other than the ones you've mentioned? Um there are um, there are a few different uh, kind of sources of resources out there, and um, so the collaborative problem solving um, approach is something that you can um, Google, and there are a number of videos that pop up if that's something that you'd like to learn more about. That really is aimed at um, you know both kids with maybe attentional or other learning problems who um, who do have kind of a not so obvious lack of skill um, in being able to solve their problems. And I think it's also a useful approach, um, especially with, with teens um, who need to give some input into solving their problems. So um, that's one that I think is really helpful. And, um, and then, you know, for younger kids, uh, there are a number of resources on the National Child Traumatic Stress Network um, that, are really helpful um, and ones that are specific to not only coping in COVID, but also wildfires. And um, they have some online books, you know, that talk about how to talk about this with kids. Um, Sesame Street has some really useful resources for younger children as well. Last question for you. What are your favorite children's books? either read the kids or for young teens to read for themselves that you're aware of that are not directly about this topic, but perhaps indirectly, if any. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think um, that is, um, that's a tough one. I think that, you know, where the wild things are is yeah. really helpful right. for um, our younger kids, you know, just to know that, um, I mean, the, the monsters, you know, represent different difficult feelings, right, that need to be managed and tamed. And, um, and so I think that's a great one for, um, for younger kids. Um, and then I think, um, 
you know, in terms of older kids, it really depends on on where they're at and what their interests are. Um, like, but uh, I've Ramona series. I love Ramona. Yeah. <laughs> Ramona is a great problem solver. Yeah. I think that you know books that really um, help to show some level of both struggle and resilience. Um, and so Ramona is really you know great with that. Um, and yeah, so I'll just, I'll pause there. Um, but yeah. a lot of Thanks kids so are wanting to, yeah, some fantasy and, um, and places where they can, you know, find heroes. Well, Dr. Steinbuckle, thank you so much. I really appreciate you, Karen, your experience, your wisdom, your grasp of this, this topic um, and sharing that with everybody today. And I want to thank everybody um, who's joined us for the last several weeks of this series. This is the end of, of this particular mini medical series. Um, it's been a pleasure to present this to you all. And um, we wish you the best. Um, it, it's, it's so nice at this point to be able to grasp onto the hope of the vaccine and um, the, the, the real hope that in the next coming months, things are going to get better and better. So thanks again. Take care. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.